there's ever a hymn that deserved a hearty amen, it's that one. Amen. As we come now to our uh, morning message, I would ask you to turn to Hebrews chapter 4. And as you do, you will recognize that we've been in a section of Scripture here back in Hebrews that has extended really from the third chapter, a common theme, if you will, that began with some comparisons, or really one comparison, that Christ is greater than Moses. And we walked at length through that comparison to show that there is no question, no question that Christ is greater. Well, in what way? Well, Moses is great, but a servant, Christ is the reigning Son, glorious, reigning Lord. And so again, there is no comparison, as great as Moses was. And then the author uses Moses as a segue to a warning from the life of Moses. He says, you remember, Moses led the people by God's power out of Egypt. And you'll remember that that generation, so privileged to be led out of Egypt and to see the wondrous workings of God, yet they didn't enter. They fell and died in the desert, in the wilderness. And he tries to take that, and, and, and I've given the example of shaking the lapels of the listener to say, don't you die in the wilderness. Don't you miss the promise that has been set out before you because of disobedience resulting from a hardened heart. So we see that in the days of Moses, there were some who did not make it to the land of rest. Well... He then points out that in Psalm 95, David applies this to his generation. Really, he says, God says through David that there is still a promise of rest for the people of God and a warning attached to it. Do not harden your hearts. Do not rebel as they did in the wilderness, or you too will miss the promise. In the days of glory and activity of God, all that God had blessed the the people in David's day with, There's still this warning, just as in the days of Moses, you can rebel and die in the wilderness outside the promise of God. And so we have it in Moses' day, we have it in David's day, and the author of Hebrews says, And I say unto you, in his day, this promise is held out for the people of God even today. Today, if you hear this gospel being preached, if you hear this message of rest, If you hear this, do not harden your hearts, or you too will die outside the promise. So he's encouraging his hearers, particularly the ones who are considering leaving the church to go back to the synagogue, to think about what that means. Are you no different than those in the days of Moses who said, let's turn back to Egypt? I've identified myself amongst the people of God, but I'd rather leave God and go back. He says, that's what's happening today when you say, for safety's sake, let's turn back. So again, recognize that Moses did not take them into rest. Joshua could not take them into rest, as we saw last Sunday. Only Jesus can lead his people truly into rest. And that's really what this author has been talking about. But today, the text will call us to be diligent in entering that rest. And that's kind of strange wording, isn't it? First of all, diligence taking us into rest seems a little bit uh, paradoxical. But even then, 
we hold to the fact that we are saved by grace alone, not by our works. So how do we diligently enter into this rest? So we want to look at that today, and we want to look at two points. First of all, a warning against disobedience, which we've been seeing for a long time, but we need to see that the author repeats it again here. We need to recognize that in the wisdom of God, we need to see that this record of disobedience in the past is a warning to us today, in the author's day and to us today. And second of all, a call to diligence. And so beginning first with this idea of a warning against disobedience, well, we've been looking at that for quite some time. There's a context to this, isn't there? He makes it clear in the very verse itself, in the second half, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. This example that we've been setting before you. No no other example needed. That example alone. Look to it. Here were a people who were led out of Egypt, who were identified among the people of God, but they did not make it to the promise because of disobedience and a lack of faith. And here is the thing. Take them as a warning to you personally. Personally. And so this is important for us to think about. Now, it's particularly important to think about because, and we've, we've tried to touch on this several times, if there was ever a people that you would think would not rebel, would it not be the wilderness generation? Yes, they went into some difficult uh, places and difficult conditions, but what did they have before? They had been slaves, strangers in a strange land. What did God take from them? Right? They were slaves. And they were no longer favored in the land of Egypt. Pharaoh no longer remembered Joseph. And the people were not treated well. In fact, they were seen as enemies within the land. To the point at which they said, let us kill their offspring so they don't continue to grow in number. So we need to recognize they weren't leaving some great place that God had called them out of. So it it doesn't make sense in the first place. But on top of that, they were delivered from the most powerful man and most powerful nation on earth. And not just through coincidence, but through the working of the power of God made evident before all of them. Signs and wonders that you could not miss were evident and clear. And yet here was a people seeing all that who had to feel when they were leaving, yeah, God has delivered us. We're glad. This is really good. And we're hearing there's some promises that are made to us. And then they make it to Sinai. They find out, oh, we're going to be a favored nation, a special nation. And God's going to give us a land flowing with milk and honey. It's all great. It's all good. It's amazing. It's not hard to convince people to desire after good promises. On Wednesday nights, as we're going through Pilgrim's Progress, we're talking about this very thing, Wednesday night, pliable. He hears Christians speak of all the glories that will attend to those who put their faith in Christ. And he says, sign me up. There's no bumps in the road, right? It's going to all be good and easy and all glory, all promise. My friends, I think Bunyan was picturing really what we're talking about here. A people that said, hey, listen, if it means we're leaving slavery, we're going into a great and glorious land, sign us up. We got gold on the way out. (laughs) They paid us on the way out. How much better could it be? But soon enough, there are some bumps in the road, some inconveniences, some troubles and difficulties. 
And the people begin to show that they had no faith in God. They questioned everything. They questioned His goodness. They questioned His plans. They questioned His leaders. They questioned His direction. They questioned everything. Why? They had no faith in Him. They had no faith in Him. Now, we would admit sometimes we question God, don't we? Why is this happening? Why, why are we going through this? But we recognize in that these are moments of lowness in our faith, right? We're in the kind of lulls of faith in those moments. We come back to the Word of God and we remember our sovereign God and that He is working all things together for good to those who are called according to His purpose. So we recognize that in those moments we must bolster our faith. It's like, um, I believe, help me in my unbelief, O God. That's where we're at in those moments. But these are not people low in their faith. These are people who have no faith. What we see, I hate to do Cliff's notes, many of you have read it, but we're going to see this with Pliable, aren't we? This man never believed. He was never truly converted or, or burdened by his sin. He says, let's go faster. I'm not held back. Let's go get these good things. So long as there's no bad things. So long as there's no trials or troubles or difficulties. And yet, that's what happens in the Exodus story, isn't it? There's trials and there's troubles and there's difficulties. And there's things that people don't like. And sooner or later they say, you know what? We think Egypt was a little bit better. Let us go back there. Why would God bring us out here to die? Or, as they say later, later as the spies have gone to the land and come back and given their report, they say, why would God take us into this land to die there? And then our wives and children be unprotected against these peoples. I mean, no faith anywhere. There's not even a sign of faith, not even an inkling of faith in any of those people. Well, the author of Hebrews says, it's amazing the parallels here. Because we got some people in his day, he says, who came out of the synagogue and said, we recognize that Christ is the Messiah. He is the one that God has sent to redeem us from our sins. And we put our faith in him. They said this. The question is, did they mean any of it? Or do they just like all the attending promises that were offered alongside? Now, I think we've made clear this author believes that they are legit. But he's saying, the only way I'm going to know is to see what you do. If you leave and go back to the synagogue, it will be an evidence to me you were never amongst the people of God. You never had your heart changed. If you stay and persevere, you will give evidence that you are amongst the people of God. Now, that's just like the, the example in Exodus. A people who wandered happily until bumps came in the road and then very unhappily thereafter. And here, a people who left the synagogue seem to be with joy. Oh, Jesus is the answer. Let's sing some songs. But then persecution starts, difficulty starts, and they start going, we didn't sign up for this. We didn't sign up for this. We didn't have any of this back in the synagogue. And if we go back now, we won't now have any of this. And that sounds better than Jesus. Now, that's ultimately the choice that the author is saying they're making, right? To take that package deal instead of Jesus. Now, they probably put it in some words that would make it seem like they're not having to choose that, right? We can go back to the synagogue and go back amongst the, the people of God over there. And in this sense, we're not giving up Jesus. We're worshiping the same God. We've walked through at length the way he's rebutting this argument that you can't go back. 
You can't go back to shadows when the fullness has appeared. You can't do it. It shows that you don't have faith in the fullness over the sign, over the shadow. And so again, there's a warning. Do not prove that you're just like those who came before you. Do not make it obvious. Do not make it clear. Because it will be clear. And ultimately it will be shown. And we're not going to get into this today, but we often quote verse 12. But his point on verse 12 is eventually the Word will reveal the truth. You will stand with it or you will stand against it. You will flee from it or you will embrace it. But ultimately the Word of God will reveal where we stand. And so we're going to be looking at that next Sunday morning. But again, think about the parallel here. Don't be like those who shook and quaked in the wilderness. They faltered. And they were found in disobedience. They disobeyed God at every turn. And that disobedience revealed the condition of their heart. That's the point he's trying to make. It's not that they lost their faith, but their rebellion was made evident what was in their heart to begin with, which was they had no faith. That's what he said. The word was preached to them as it was to us, but it did not profit them because it was not mixed with faith in their hearts. So they did not believe, and it was made evident. He's saying, and if you leave, if you go out from us, then you prove you were never amongst us. Your actions, your rebellion against God, makes evident the condition of your heart. This is that whole, the fruit, right, showing the tree to be good or bad, which is given to us throughout the Scriptures. Now, the author treats this like this is a real danger. I mean, he's not saying this flippantly or mildly. He's talking here pleading with a generation of people, or at least within his community, a people who are thinking about this seriously, and he's saying to them, this is serious danger, and you must take it seriously. Well, how do we take it seriously? That's really what we want to come to this morning, and that will bring us to our second point, a call to diligence. We have here a call to diligence, and we see that immediately in the text. Look at verse 11. Now, you'll notice immediately there's a therefore. It's not the first word, but in my translation, but uh, let us therefore, we talked about how therefore signals this is based on what's come before. So what's come before? This argument of a rest remaining that many fell short of along the way, that even Joshua, as great as he was, could not give, but that's held out for the people of God today. And he says, if you understand that, then, therefore, let us be diligent. Let us be diligent. Now that word, spidoza, it means to be diligent, to make haste, to make speed, to be uh, in labor to do something, to accomplish something. It means going after it, right? And Arthur Pink uh, has an interesting interpretation of the choice of words here. And he says that you've got two words playing off in this verse. One is to make haste, to hurry, and the other is to be delayed or to be, as he puts it colloquially, a day late. And he goes back to uh, Kardesh Barnea and talks about how the the spies returned and the people said, we will not go, and God said, then you'll never enter, and brought judgment against them. And the next day they said, well, then we will go up into the land. We will go up into the land. And Moses was like... (laughs) If you do it after God has told you not to, you're just disobeying Him again. It doesn't show faith. It doesn't show obedience because you're trying to now do a day late what you should have done yesterday. So Arthur Pink sees that as a wordplay 
in the text. I don't know. It might be there. The words are there. But again, certainly that theology is accurate, isn't it? They were a day late when the spies returned and gave a report. They should have had faith the day before. And again, were they responding in faith the next day? No. They were responding simply out of the threat of punishment. Right? No real remorse, no real conviction of sin, just to people who said, oh, we don't want God to do uh, judgments against us, and so we'll just go up. We'll just go up. So again, we see this. But here in this, there is a call to be diligent, to, to make haste, to make speed in entering this rest. Well, those are words of effort. Words of effort. Now, uh, effort and rest that we talked about earlier, that's kind of a paradoxical thing anyway, but you can think about, well, I'm going to hurry and finish my work so I can go home and rest tonight. Well, that makes sense. But what's interesting to us theologically we'd want to think about is it's the words of effort in relation to entering rest, what we think of as salvation. And we know that there's no way this author is arguing that we would be saved by more effort or more work. That's not his argument here. So what is his argument? Well, in fact, the very problem we identified last Sunday morning in the picture he gives us of Joshua is that Joshua could not enter them into rest. Why? Because the, the possessing of rest pictured in the land was something they had to do by obedience. They had to fulfill the commands of God. And the truth is, they couldn't do it. It was impossible that Joshua could give them rest because it was impossible that rest could come through the Old Covenant. Now, this is made clear throughout the theology of the New Testament. Paul makes this clear in several places that we mentioned last week. But by the works of the law shall no, just be, shall no flesh be justified. Now, that is what the argument is. And we talked about 2 Corinthians and several places where this argument is made that the law could not provide rest. In fact, if you want to be honest about it, the law did the opposite of providing rest, didn't it? The law offered conviction of sin. The law offered knowledge that you were a rebel against God. The law offered knowledge that God is perfectly holy and you are not, which means you will fall under His judgment. And it speaks of those kinds of judgments. The law did not give you rest. The law, glorious and good, gave you in one sense the recognition that you were to fall under God's judgment unless you could perfectly keep the law, which you cannot do. Now this is the reality. This is what Paul says over and over again in the New Testament. Over and over again. And the question would be if the old covenant could provide rest, why the need of a new covenant? Why the need of a new covenant? What does Paul say in Galatians? I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness cometh by the law, Christ Jesus died in vain. In other words, if we could attain it through the law, Christ didn't need to come and give His life. He didn't need to atone for us if we could earn it ourselves through the law. That was never the point of the law. The point of the law was to direct you to your need of a mediator and Savior in Christ Jesus as coming Messiah. So in the same way that we could not be saved by the law, the land could not truly be possessed. This picture of rest could not be possessed. And so again, we need to recognize this. All of this Old Testament points to the New Testament. Who says that? Again, Paul in Romans. The end of the law is Christ Jesus. The point of the law, the aim of the law is to point you to Him. Galatians, 
It is a schoolmaster which takes us to Christ. Over and again, Paul tells us this. If we get the idea somehow that the Jews could have been saved under obedience to the law, you're missing the entire theology of Scripture. It never argues that. Paul makes the point very clearly. How was Abraham justified? He believed God. From the very beginning, he believed God, and it was counted unto him as righteousness. What about David? David, uh, Paul says, declared this, that blessed is the man whose sins are not imputed to him. Right? Whose, whose guilt is not applied to his account. That's the blessed man, David says. David says, I can see this even through the Old Covenant, that the man who is blessed is the one who does not answer in himself for his sins, but they are applied to another. The blessing of our sins being taken as far as the east is from the west. My friends, that is the blessing that was being looked forward to. That is the blessing that Moses could not provide. Joshua could not provide. David could not provide. But there was one coming who could provide. And so, my friends, all of this is pointing to this. There is a call to diligence not to earn our salvation, but to recognize that we have a salvation in Christ Jesus that we don't earn, but we are given by God's grace. We stand not in our own righteousness, which was what the law showed us we could not do, We've been talking about Matthew at night, Matthew's gospel at night. And what do you see in the Jewish opponents, the the Pharisees? They argue more or less you can. They've corrupted the law to be something that you can keep, something that you can obey and, and, and can build a righteousness for you. And again, the point here is that is not the case. It has never been the case. The truth is we need a righteousness that we cannot earn for ourselves. Because all of our righteousness is like filthy rags to a holy and righteous God. My righteousness, no matter how much I work on it, will never be enough. You know, uh, one pollutant in a cup of water means it's not pure water. No matter how much cleaner my cup of water looks than yours, it's still slightly polluted, right? And that's the problem that we have. Some of us stand before God thinking we're a little better than everybody else, but it doesn't matter. We are not God. And so the truth is we need a righteousness that we cannot provide for ourselves, a righteousness in the standing of Christ. And we are called, transformed, and empowered by the Spirit to not only live in Christ Jesus, but then empowered to live out our life in Christ Jesus, in union with Him. So now we are called to obedience just as they were in the Old Testament. We're not going to be able to perfectly do it, but we are empowered to do it, something they were not in the Old Covenant. We need to recognize some of these important distinctions and realize why this new covenant is so glorious that Paul could say that the old covenant, which was glorious, when compared to the new covenant, it's as if the old covenant had no glory at all. That's what he's saying of this glorious new covenant. Now the beauty of this is that we would need to think about, the reason that we are not arguing for works when we say be diligent to enter that rest is, our standing in Christ was not earned by us, And our misdeeds do not remove us from the people of God, nor disqualify us from the promises that we receive in Christ Jesus. We attain the promise and standing solely by faith and in Christ alone. And the author of Hebrews is actually making that point. What's he saying then when he says to be diligent to enter the rest? He's saying keep your eyes upon Jesus. The problem of the wilderness was a faith problem. He's already answered that, didn't he? 
Was it a gospel problem? Did they not receive the gospel? He says, no, they received the gospel. They received the message of good news. That wasn't the problem. Was it that they had not seen an evident working of God? No, they saw an evident working of God. That wasn't the problem. Was it that God had not remained with them in the sense of lead? No, He was with them. Pillars of fire and all sorts of manners of demonstrating His care and provision and continuing with His people. What was the problem? It did not profit them. None of that was of any profiting effect upon them because it was not mixed with faith in their heart. The problem was faith. The problem was faith. So again, when we're told now to be diligent based on all that, therefore, therefore let us be diligent. Let us be diligent in what? Let us be diligent in trusting Christ. That's ultimately what's being said here. The generation that faltered when the days got difficult showed that they lacked faith. That we've already established. And if you lack faith, this author says, you will likewise falter. Sooner or later, you may have a lot of people fooled, but sooner or later you will stumble and fall. We can look at the parable of the soils. We'll be coming to that very soon and see that exact picture. Seed hit different kinds of ground and seemed to come forward, seemed to come up. But my friends, they won't all last. And that's the point he's getting at. Sooner or later, trouble will come and you will show that you never belonged with the people of God because you did not have faith. And that's kind of a problem, isn't it? Because faith is a necessity to be amongst the people of God. It is a requirement to be amongst the people of God. And so if you don't have it, you're not among us. That's the reality. So you must be diligent in trusting Christ. Well, how are we to be diligent in trusting Christ? That's really getting to the rubber to the road, isn't it? How do we do this? How are we diligent in trusting Christ? Well, there are many ways. But one thing is, we must remind ourselves to persevere. When those bumps come, when those moments come that we think, I don't know if I want to keep doing this. We must preach to ourselves the promises of God and the warnings of God on those that falter, stumble, and fall. If we are not among the people of God, it may not work. But if we are, it will work. That's his point. Prove that I'm right in believing that you are brothers who have received the heavenly calling by hearing this warning and responding positively to it. How do you respond positively to it? The Holy Spirit's at work in your heart to convict you of that sin and you repent of it and you stay and you stand with Christ and you endure persecution or whatever may come. So persevere. That is one way that we do it. But we must also stay anchored to God's Word, which the Holy Spirit uses powerfully to lead us and guide us and convict us and strengthen us. That's important to stay in God's Word on a personal level, but We also want to recognize there's an importance to gathering as the people of God. Preaching is important. I don't say that because I'm up here. I say it because we recognize that truth. Our own Baptist catechism that we're going through week by week says what? Question 73. How is the Word made effectual to salvation? The Spirit of God makes the reading, but especially the preaching of the Word of God, an effectual means of convicting and converting sinners. So, salvation, justification, and of building them up in holiness and comfort, sanctification. There is something that God does 
right? Some people call it the foolishness of preaching, right? Paul refers to it in that way. There is something God does with preaching that is different than just reading the Bible ourselves. And so we need to recognize that we are called to be a part of the body of believers and to put ourselves under the preaching of the Word. But it's also in the church and only in the church that we can fulfill some of the commands we've already been given in this letter. How about the command to exhort one another daily? How do you do that as a solo Christian separated from the people of God? You can't. But doesn't this also tell us there are going to be days dark and bumpy where we're going to need each other's encouragement and exhortation? Days where we might be tempted to walk away from the faith and would if God had not provided us a people with whom to be encouraged and exhorted. That's one of His means of grace and care for His people is He's given us each other. And that's super important in our walk. And so we need to think about that. But there's another way in which we want to think about, again, that God has given us uh, the church as a means of uh, being diligent, and that is that we come to the very table we're going to come to this morning, the table of our King. And we need to be diligent in doing that. I think as, the, as it's spoken of being diligent here, we should be diligent in all these things, diligent in encouraging and exhorting one another, diligent in gathering together, diligent in worshiping together, diligent in persevering, diligent in the Word, diligent to listen to preaching and teaching and to be a part of the people of God and diligent to come to the Lord's table. Now we've long recognized this is a sacrament given to the church. This is not given to parachurch organizations. This is not given to Bible study groups or, or college Christian groups. It's not given to really even individuals. It's given to the church. It's administered within the local church. And my friends, we need to recognize in that sense, we need to be part of the body of believers to come and be nourished at the Lord's table. This is the place where we truly, in some mysterious way, commune with Christ. Now, the great reformers debated exactly how to understand that. But there is some sense in which we are joined with Christ in a spiritual blessing in this, in this act. We are nourished, spiritually nourished and uh, given grace in a sense. In some way that we uh, struggle to fully understand, this table is necessary. We need to be diligent in coming to it as a people. And again, these are things that can only take place within the church. And so we need to recognize that we walk by faith diligently. We obey the commands of God diligently to diligently mortify the flesh, a command that we are given and should diligently do. To diligently, as Paul said, not tire in doing good. It's easy to get tired in doing good, isn't it? But we're told to not get tired of doing good. And so we must be diligent to obey that command as the people of God. We must diligently testify of our Savior, diligently love His people, diligently remember that none of that diligence is why we have part and lot with the people of God. None of it. None of it. No. There we must be diligent to remember the grace of God alone, which delivered us from sin and death. There we remember diligently our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whom, by faith and by God's grace, we stand. We stand in His righteousness. And so we must remember that with diligence, a diligence to remember and love and persevere in thanksgiving. That is ultimately what this author is calling the people he's 
uh, writing to, to think about and to do. A diligence to remember and never forget the grace of God which saved us from wrath. A diligence to show, uh, to love Christ, His people, and the kingdom to which He has called us. To persevere by faith through whatever hardship might come our way. And to do so with thanksgiving to the God who has saved us and blessed us and invited us into all these glorious promises by His grace. As we come to this table today, ultimately that's what we're doing. We're diligently remembering and thanking God for all of these blessings that we have in Christ Jesus. And so with that, as we prepare to come to the table, let's pray together.